and welcome to Spawn, a common sense, generally fun, and hopefully helpful discussion on parenting and parenting culture. Hey, I'm Kristen Chase, and along with Liz Gumbiner, we're the co-founders of CoolMomPics.com. Today, we're going to be talking with Virgie Tovar about body positivity and self-love, which is such an important topic, but particularly now during the pandemic. Before we get to talk to Virgie, let me tell you a little bit about her. She is the author of The Self-Love Revolution, Radical Body Positivity for Girls of Color, and You Have the Right to Remain Fat. She hosts the podcast Rebel Eaters Club, which you can subscribe to right now while you're listening to Spawn, and is a contributor for Forbes.com. You may also know her because she started the hashtag campaign, hashtag lose hate, not wait. Virgie, Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. All right. So let's start right off the bat by talking about what you're seeing when it comes to body image since this whole pandemic started. Are you seeing issues that were problematic before escalating now or changing in any way? Yeah. I mean, I'm seeing a few things. The first thing that I'm noticing from people who I work with or people who I follow is that people who are in recovery from eating disorders and chronic dieting are finding themselves returning to habits because food restriction and eating disorders develop in part out of fear and a desire to control things that feel out of control. So COVID is a new situation for humans and it's scary and we're really being forced to face the vulnerability of our bodies, the vulnerability of even our country, our world. So it makes sense to me that those habits are returning because the body remembers the tools we developed when we were afraid and it calls on those to bring us a sense of stability. Like for me, I found that at the very beginning of the, when we started sheltering in place in San Francisco, it was really terrifying. You know, it was kind of this, Mm -hmm. this immediate interruption of life as I've known it my entire life. And so I found that restriction and eating stuff that I had done when I was 19 or 20 years old was resurfacing. And I really, really thought that I was way past the point where I could ever be triggered back into some of the disordered eating that I had at that age. But, you know, I was able to kind of have patience with it and recognize, oh, right, the reason I was doing it back then is because I was terrified and Mm -hmm. felt out of control. Right. And I feel terrified and out of control right now. So this is exactly where my brain is going. We're taught in our culture to deal with anxiety by restricting what we eat. Right. So it makes complete sense that people are like having that stuff triggered if they're in recovery. And certainly people who aren't in recovery are having that stuff extra kicked up, right? Because they have all these mechanisms, they have their program and their routine. And without that routine, they find that they quickly unravel, right? They become emotionally unstable. They rely upon food restriction and a particular access to the gym and a particular kind of body to give them a sense of wellness. So, I mean, I've been seeing jokes about like the COVID-19 Right. Because people are having anxiety because they can't go to the gym. They're having anxiety because they're at home. They're afraid that they have access to the refrigerator. Mm-hmm. They're afraid of using food to feel a sense of comfort. Mm-hmm. These anxieties are deeply embedded in how we're taught to see and understand food and bodies in our culture. I'm seeing that a lot. And I think the last thing I'm seeing is an increased scapegoating of higher weight people because fatness is considered a comorbidity factor, apparently. Oh, geez. Um, I did not even see that. I didn't 
see that. So yeah. that's, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. I mean, essentially if you're a higher weight patient, which mind you, two thirds of women are right. Um, right. You're immediately seen when you go to the doctor as a non-compliant patient, mm. right? Like, and then we already have all these weird conversations about worthiness and whose body deserve. I mean, it's, it's really been kind of terrifying mm-hmm. in certain circles, just sort of seeing like, unless you're doing these particular kinds of things to ensure your health, you don't deserve the same level of care as people who are perceived as doing those things, which is really troubling. And I think the other thing about the comorbidity factor that's interesting and crappy is that obesity was declared a disease by the AMA a few years ago against the suggestion of the committee that had been assigned the issue. So, I mean, it's it's just like one of those things where I'm like, the committee that did all the research and all the work and determined that it is not, it does not meet the criteria of a disease, were denied, right? And it's like, we're essentially, you know, silenced. And mm-hmm. this was against better judgment called the disease. So it's, just, it's one of those things where I'm like, okay, this is, this is frustrating, right? So those are the three things I'm seeing a lot of. Yeah. I'm so thankful that you verbalize this whole idea of the need for control, right? Because things are so out of control. And I have described it as being like on a hamster wheel, right? Like I usually have things to look forward to. I have deadlines. And right now everything's up in the air. We just don't yeah. know. And as someone who would describe myself as probably having like a subclinical eating disorder, Disorder, I have had those feelings and I'm I'm thankful that you said it out loud because I think there are other people out there. Clearly, we're seeing, you know, posts on social media for those folks who are willing to discuss it. But there are probably other people listening out there who are like, why do I feel this way? Why am I feeling bad about wanting to snack all the time or not being able to control, you know, what I used to have, which was three meals a day? So it's interesting how it's bringing up all those old feelings and, like you said, kind of stirring the pot for the folks who may be struggling with them right now because I'm raising my hand. (laughs) That's that's me. (laughs) That's me. So, you know, just kind of in that vein, right, you talked about those different kinds of body image issues that are being magnified. Do you think the lack of contact, the fact that we are self-isolating or, you know, social distancing or physical distancing, if you will, is that making things better for people? Is it making it more difficult? Like, does it depend? Like, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, going back to the COVID-19 joke, right? Like, people have been taught that commiserating overweight is a way that we can bond Mm -hmm. as people. Mm -hmm. And this is why we see such rampant food policing and body surveillance at the workplace, right? Because we've been taught that there's sort of a like a socially sanctioned small number of conversations that we can feel closer to others by commiserating around. And so I think that in a moment when people don't have their usual access to contact and to socialization, they're going to lean into the stuff that they've been told can give them a sense of that closeness. And unfortunately, body shaming is one of those things in our culture. I think it's also interesting to consider and useful to consider that some people, like people who are disabled, people who are in a bigger body who might avoid going outside because they feel shame or they fear harassment. Mm -hmm. I think for some people who have mental illness, like depression, they're already facing a lot of isolation Mm -hmm. and a decreased access to contact. And I'm sort of seeing a spectrum of response from people who are already living some version of this reality that is so horrifying and new to many people. I think for some people, it's creating an exacerbation of that sense of isolation. And for some people, they're actually coping better because 
because the world is mirroring a little bit Mm -hmm. of how they feel all the time. And so it's useful to note that there's like a spectrum of response when it comes to body and body stuff around this. Yeah, I mean, we've been seeing that as well. You know, we're seeing everything from people saying, go ahead and eat everything. Like I saw, you know, a few people commenting, you know, worst time ever to start the whole 30, you know, and then there's people saying, well, I worked too hard for this, whatever that means, to give it all up now, right? So then people have become even more rigid in their response, like because, you know, whatever the phrase is, I can't let myself go or whatever that means. So I'm curious to know, what are the messages or the message that you want to be out there that you feel is important for people to hear. I mean, and I know you've spoken very publicly and honestly about that prior to the pandemic in your work and your writing. And I'm wondering if that message or messages have changed now, you know, whether it's different completely or if it's just more emphasized, like it's even more important than it was before. For me, my message has not changed. My message essentially is that everybody is valuable. All food is good food. Everybody deserves access to a life free from bigotry and discrimination, regardless of size or health status. Mm-hmm. And I mean, right, like the yes. fact that those things have not changed at all, even in the midst of like an unforeseen, very new to humans, yes. <laughs> you know, experience, <laughs> I think speaks to the fact that these things are really valuable and they're valuable not only during, you know, peace times and normal times, right? Like these are messages that help us actually survive these Mm -hmm. things that are really, really difficult. If anything, I've been trying to really work hard to democratize and make more of my messaging and more of my work available even more than it was before, Mm -hmm. because I think people are really struggling with this. Like to go back to what you were saying about people being afraid of letting go or working so hard and losing something. To me, when I hear that, what I hear is pain. What I hear is suffering, right? I Mm -hmm. hear a wound, right? I don't hear inspiration. I don't hear like, oh, I can't wait to get back. You know, I mean, there was a time for a long time that kind of messaging would trigger me right back into like, okay, I got to start doing this and start doing my thing. Like, I go to the gym, I eat my things and like make sure I eat carrots, all this stuff, right? And, (laughs) And then I got to a point in my own recovery where I was like, oh, that is not a model of like equanimity. That's not a model of groundedness. That's not a model of anything, right? Our culture teaches us that this is like the way we should be. But in fact, if your primary concern is losing the body that you've worked so hard for, there's evidence in that, that you're not connected to Mm -hmm. your humanity and the humanity of other people. And that's not a criticism. It's just sort of like a reflection, you know? Yeah. I think that's so valuable to say. And you and your work were so influential in my own recovery and really taking some time to decide that I needed to do some work around, you know, my thoughts around body image and eating, which I struggled with for my whole entire life. And that was one of the salient points, right, was this whole, why am I so focused on this? There are so many other things around me that can make me happy and bring me joy. And this is the one thing that I struggle with. And what effect does that have on my livelihood, on what I want to achieve in my life? And why is this so important to me right now? Particularly as we look at what's going on in the world, right? Like even before I had that question, and I think now I agree that it's not a criticism, but it is an awakening, if you will, or like you said, a reflection in that, wow, like that's what you're focused on. Why is that happening? What are the reasons that you're focusing in on that so much? That's kind of 
of what woke me up, I'll be completely honest, and was like, okay, maybe I need to be thinking about other things. <laughs> you know, maybe not even maybe. I need to be thinking about other things. Yes. Take the maybe out of there. <laughs> so let's talk about your book. This is so exciting. Yes. Your book is called Self-Love Revolution, Radical Body Positivity for Girls of Color. And it's so timely. It's such an important work. I've read it. I love it. So I can say with confidence that I believe that it is timely and important. However, I feel like it is even more important now. And you're aiming it at young women, right? Like this is for, I'm going to say teens or young adults, right? Yeah. I mean, our youngest reader would be a pretty voracious eight-year-old and then our (laughs) oldest would be a high school senior. Okay. (laughs) Got it. Got it. Great. And talk to me about why this, because I know your work may have skewed to, let's say, 20-somethings, 30-somethings and up, a seasoned ladies, as I speak for myself. But this is... (laughs) Really about young women. Why was that so important for you? So the publisher approached me and said, you know, we know that you talk to adults primarily, but would you consider talking to girls? And at first I was really reluctant. I was like, this is not my wheelhouse. I'm not good at this. This is not my area of expertise. My strength is talking to adults. So I was very reluctant and I wasn't sure that I was the right fit. And I think, you know, that was useful to consider, right? I think Mm -hmm. there are many people who could have written an excellent book on this topic, but they specifically wanted me to do it. So I was like, okay, I'm going to consider this. And one of the great things was, uh, well, not awesome, but I had a lot of writer's block leading up to it, which was really, I mean, It's normal to have a certain amount of stalling, but I just was like terrified. Whenever a strong emotion like that comes up and my creativity feels blocked, I know that what I need to do is interrogate. What is this about? You know, because usually it's about something unresolved. And I found that with this book, the blockage was I had a lot of unresolved grief for my own Hmm. youth. And I had a lot of grief for the girls who are growing up in this world, right? Like, I mean, I think certainly girls and teenage girls are facing better prospects than ever before in history, but they actually deserve a million times better, you know, because I mean, the statistics still abide, right? The fact that they're likely to experience sexual assault, they're likely to end up with either a restriction, some kind of eating disorder type thing, Mm -hmm. right? Like these things are still very true. And so this sense of the grief that I had for that fact Mm -hmm. was something I needed to interrogate. I finally, after I sort of was like, okay, this is what needs to happen. I need to actually be sad about my own childhood about the fact that this world is not fair. And with that in mind, I need to figure out what the message that I want for these girls to be. And I have to tell you this, it's in the book, but it's like such a perfect story. So I did my whole thing. I consulted the tarot. I did my interrogation, all the stuff. And then I was like, okay, it's time to sit down and write. And one of the cards that I had pulled the night before was a star card, which in my deck is David Bowie in the Iggy Stardust image with the lightning bolt. Amazing. And so I sit down to write and And the minute I start typing, this enormous thunder and lightning storm happens. What? Okay. That's amazing. It was just like kind of this like, oh my God, this incredible, beautiful moment. And I was like, okay, this is the mandate, right? So (laughs) I'm sitting there and I I decide like whatever is going to come out is Mm going to come out. So I end up writing a letter to the reader and I tell them what happened, right? Like this weird thing happened. 
middle of a thunder and lightning storm. And, you know, my only job is to tell you that you are powerful beyond imagination Mm -hmm. and that you should not accept anything less than 100% of the world that you want. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the message is so clear for me in the book. I, I have these like phrases that I use when I think about working with younger people. And my job as an adult is to be chief protection officer. My job is to protect them mm-hmm. from the bad things that can happen to them. And their title is chief dream officer. Yes. Um, so they're the visionary of whatever our work is. And digging into those roles um, and creating space for the reader to have that chief dream officer experience was the primary motivation when I ended up writing the book. I mean, you've spoken about how girls who grow up and are discriminated against because of their size, like lose their dreams, right? Like they are somehow not worthy enough to have dreams. So I find it amazing that that's how you're considering your audience. But I also find it interesting that you're calling yourself chief protection officer, because in my mind, that also means that you need to inoculate and educate, right? So it's not just like clearing out the trash. It's also inoculating so that they understand the messaging and how to interpret it and what is false and what is true and educating. And I think if we, you know, as parents here, we're the same, right? We are the CPOs for our kids. So it's important for us to not just raise our children with a message. Do you agree that it's important for us to point out the fallacies and say, this is why this is wrong? You know, you're only seeing images of women where clothing who are size zeros. And what what do you think about that? What message does that send? You know, beyond just trying to raise them in a certain way, it's also about educating them. Yeah, absolutely. And I do see that as an extension of the protection idea, right? Like, Mm -hmm. because they're going to come up against challenges they don't have the tools to deal with. They have a lot of tools, but sometimes we have to step in and provide those tools for them when those tools reach a limit, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, so for a child who just looks at the world and takes it at face value and then attempts to reconcile things that don't match up, right? So if they're being told at home that their body is fine, that everybody is good, and then they're being told at school and on TV that that's not the case, right? I mean, I'm sure you've seen this. I've certainly experienced this. They'll bring that home and they want to debate about it, right? Yeah. They want you to kind of help arbitrate the facts, right? Yes. And I see that role. I mean, that's such a powerful role for us. And our only job, right, is not even necessarily to continuously create more and more creative ways of convincing them. It's actually just to be a broken record. Mm -hmm. It's like they know that every time they come home with this, like, you know, but, 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 but my friends at school, but this, but I can't get my whatever. I can't get my hands around my waist. That's bad. Whatever. Our job is to simply say, well, this is what we believe in this house and this is what we know to be true. Yes. And I mean, as much as they might fight you on it, that's what they want. <laughs> that's what they need, right? They do. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you that there is a process of helping them get language, helping them understand, helping them develop the thinking skills that are going to give them the tools when they have to face that situation again. And I think like in the book, there's various moments where I give them questions to 
consider, right? Like when I'm like, okay, when we're looking at media, here's the five questions you need to ask whenever you're looking at anything. Number one, who does this benefit? Does Mm -hmm. it benefit the people like me? Does it benefit me and the people I love? Um, And sort of like giving them that tool where they can ask that question about anything, right? Like those kinds of things are really valuable and letting the values that they've learned at home and their natural talent and interest in fairness and justice, because I do think children are naturally oriented towards fairness and justice, Mm -hmm. um, letting those things sort of coalesce and become this sense of empowerment that they don't have to look outward 100% of the time in order to get that sense of confidence and power. That makes total sense. I'm just wondering too, right, if we are giving this book, your book, to our kids. You know, my youngest is nine, my oldest is 15, and I have three girls, so all of them fall in that age range that would really benefit from your book. I'm wondering, though, if this also means that we have to look at ourselves, right? Because kids learn from example, They hear what we're saying. They hear us in the messages, even if we don't say them out loud, right? They see us looking in a mirror. They see us constantly sucking in our stomach or whatever it is that's happening to us and how we relate to our own bodies. So what do you say to moms out there who maybe things are being exacerbated now during quarantine, right? Or maybe not. Maybe they've always been there. Like, what can you say to them in terms of how they can do their own work so that their kids, I'll say my kids, my girls, don't experience that same pain, anxiety, loss, grief, whatever those feelings were related to size as they grow up? I mean, I think in the world as it exists right now, there's no way to 100% protect them from that. Mm -hmm. To be fair, right? Like I think also particularly moms, moms face enormous expectations and pressure because of sexism in our Mm -hmm. culture. And we know statistically that women are moms are likelier to be the ones who are preparing the meal and dressing the kids and all the moments that are often and the biggest triggery stuff for us as women. (laughs) That's such a great point. Absolutely. My first thing is, I mean, I really want to tell moms in particular, you're not a bad person. You don't have to take on every single thing. You're not a superhero you're just a soft, squishy person, just like your kid. Mm -hmm. Um, And so remembering that, and that's something I even talk about in the book where I'm just like, we have all of our armor. We have our walls. We have our boundaries, right? Because we've been taught that we need to have those things. The world has shown us that we need to have those things. And for women, dieting and weight control and, and shaping your body and going to the gym, that's part of our system of defense. That's part of our armor when we go out in the world. Mm -hmm. But to never lose track of the fact that, yes, we live in a world where you have to have armor, unfortunately. Now, maybe not forever, but today, yes. But never to forget that there's a soft, squishy, vulnerable person who has dreams and wishes and who gets sad and and angry and all those things, right? And like, you know, and it's so easy to see that in our children and it's not as easy to see that in ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, to start with, right, it's a lot of pressure to raise a body positive child, but it's also an amazing opportunity to actually do some of the healing work that we all deserve. So that impulse to restrict and to diet and to suck our stomach and do all that stuff is, as I mentioned, a product of an unhealed and unrecognized often wound. Mm-hmm. Um, and the wound of believing that something is wrong with you or that you're not worthy of XYZ unless you look like XYZ. Yeah. And so I really think that not just being 
being a model, seeing yourself as having a stake in the game, right? Like you don't just want to raise a kid who doesn't have these issues. You actually deserve not to have these issues too. Yes. Thank you so much for saying that because I think especially parents, you know, we can get into this self-sacrificial cycle, right? Like everything we do is for our children. We want our children to recognize equality and to understand diversity and to not be sexist and racist and all these things. But like we also need to require that and expect that and allow whatever that is to be present and alive for ourselves too, because we deserve and we should be living those things as well. So I I don't want to interrupt you, but I wanted to say thank you so much for giving moms and all parents, but moms permission. Then sometimes we just need that. You know what I mean? We're the givers of permission. Like who's giving us permission? You are (laughs) today. You're giving us permission. Yes, I love giving permission. It's so important. But Mm -hmm. like, I mean, in terms of like some brass tack things, like some actual strategies that I've come up with for parents is like, you know, when we teach children and we teach ourselves, right? Like uh, that all bodies are good bodies. We help to guard them and ourselves against disordered eating and body dysmorphia. And for children, giving them that foundation is going to be a protective factor for them throughout their whole lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's also important to recognize, and here's where things get kind of into the, the data and the science, right? Like the current cultural paradigm, which has a preoccupation with weight, it doesn't actually, there's no evidence, absolutely none. Mm-hmm. There's zero evidence that it actually leads to better health practices or mental health, yes. period. End of story, done. <laughs> and I, a lot of people are like, well, but like, if I'm not part of diet culture, then like, what's and what's going to happen to me? I'm just going to like, what I mean, what? Like, and I'm like, it is not the absence of diet culture that creates these problems. It's the presence of diet culture that creates these problems. And right. I think because we've just been sold such a bill of goods, it's really hard to keep track of that. But anyway, like food restriction and weight control methods tend to be correlated, in fact, with anxiety, depression, higher rates of body dissatisfaction, etc. So teaching kids body positivity interrupts this harmful cycle. Mm-hmm. A few things that I think are really important take-homes are like, eating is good, eating is safe, mm-hmm. children don't have to be afraid of wanting to eat, and mm-hmm. neither do you. Mm-hmm. Um, parents can model and enjoy like moving and eating for the sake of pleasure and fun. Right. And so that can be just like, we're going to put on music. We're going to, you know, we're going to do this thing. It's and like that joy and just kind of letting that sense of joy be the thing that leads and that anchors the activities. Recognize that the research is very clear on the fact that attempting to control your child's weight is highly unlikely to Mm -hmm. lead to anything beyond a likelihood that they will develop body dysmorphia or an eating disorder. Right. So that's the only thing. Attempting to control your child's weight is only leading to a higher likelihood of disaster. It's not helping at all. Like just to like rephrase that, <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> help. If it's like you want it to help, you feel like it will do something, but it actually has the opposite effect of what you want it to do. Yes, absolutely. It's also important to decouple weight from wellness. So every kid and every parent can do health-promoting behaviors that have nothing to do with weight loss. Mm-hmm. So teaching kids that health isn't about being a low weight right. helps kids up for a life free from the danger of weight cycling. So like you can eat like yummy vegetables. We know vegetables and fruits are good. We know that cleaning out in nature is good. We know that like getting to a point in our bodies where we're sweating, those things are good. But we have to decouple those 
things from actual, like a particular weight. Yes. Because that weight preoccupation that leads to all the other stuff, eating veggies and running around and like having fun and sweating and all that doesn't lead to like body dysmorphia and shame and all this stuff. But having a weight goal attached to that does. Mm -hmm. So it's important to like really recognize that. And I think the last thing I'm going to say about that, actually I have two more things. Like I think it's important to like let your children eat until they're full, Mm -hmm. which I think is very for a lot of parents. Yes. Um, but let them do that because what's going to happen is that affirms their natural hunger fullness signals. What what happens in diet culture is people lose access to that. Yes. So they have no idea when they're hungry. They have no idea when they're full. It's very disorienting to not know when you're hungry and when you're full. And it leads to all kinds of other like sense of instability. And the last thing I want to say is like, it's okay to advocate for your kids at school and at the doctor. Mm. Um, recently, a parent sent me a note that I love that she had asked to be included in her child's medical records. It was like a little post-it note that I think she had written several copies of. And it essentially asked that um, doctors not express concern over her child's BMI and instead ask them to ask them like how their family promoted mental and physical health. That's fantastic. Anyway, like you're allowed to do that and you should. Yes. You know, and I appreciate this because, you know, I've got three girls at home, two of which would be considered on the, on the under, I don't want to say underweight, right? But like per percentiles, all that crazy stuff that you get at the doctor's office, right? So comparatively, I have one daughter who is a healthy kid, but she has a totally different body shape. And it has come to her own attention, right? Like she is aware of it, that her younger sister is basically extremely thin. That is her shape. That's how she is right now. And her body shape does not match that. But yet she's average weight. She's perfectly healthy. She's great. Sure, her body is awesome. And I have had such a challenge trying to navigate that. And I'm sure I'm not the only one, right, that is dealing with different bodies in the house and girls who are reaching the age of the the girls that you are reaching for your book who are noticing it more. They're hyper aware of it. And we've had long conversations about, you know, bodies are beautiful. Like your shape is different. That's what makes you an interesting, cool person is that everyone has has a different body shape. Are there any things that I could be saying to her in particular about, you know, what she's experiencing? Yeah. I mean, it's tough, right? Because she's being inundated by a lot of messages Mm -hmm. um, that if she can be smaller, that's always going to be a better thing. At the end of the day, I think it goes back to something I kind of referenced earlier. I think it's important to sit down when you when you have a little bit of alone time and craft a script or a, a few scripts about exactly what you want to share with her. You know, mm-hmm. what, what are sort of the talking points, so to speak? And that broken record methodology is really, really, really useful because, you know, when we stay on message and we even repeat certain phrases over and over again, it becomes incorporated into how this kid is thinking. They can call on that message whenever they're having that moment internally. I think also it's useful to offer a few questions to consider. Something like, you know, why do you think that way? Where did you get that idea from? 
Mm-hmm. Do you believe, you know, is it possible that we could reframe this and what would it look like to value every single body regardless of size or or whatever? I think another thing that's useful, and I, and I don't know, like I think this is a tool that has varying degrees of success. I haven't tried it out very many times, but one of the things that I have found really useful is looking at the unique qualities that different kinds of bodies possess. So for mm-hmm. instance, when you have a bigger body, you often actually have more muscle because your musculature develops to carry your body and carry your skeleton and all that stuff. So, you know, it might be really neat to be like, oh, you know, this, like, look at this thing that you can do because you're maybe a little bit bigger and you mm-hmm. have this more advanced musculature. And maybe this thing, right? Like in, similarly, I've used this tool often with adults, but things like, you know, what are the strengths of having a bigger body? Like, what are the things that you love about having this bigger body? And how can we celebrate people who have smaller bodies and the strengths that they have without losing track of like, oh, and my body is totally as valuable. And here are the unique things that I can do. And together we can create a world that is full of all these different qualities, which is so rad. I mean, I was just listening to Temple Grandin did did part of a talk at City Arts and Lecture and Francisco. And I was watching the webcast and, you know, she is like a huge advocate for neurodiversity and a huge advocate for autism. And she said, she's like, the, the world needs all different kinds of brains, right? Like her mm. brain mm-hmm. processes everything visually. So she has this perfectly incredible like ability to recall and all this stuff. And her brain doesn't work like doing algebra and running algorithms and all. That's not how her brain works. But she's able to contribute immensely to her her field because she has this totally different perspective and her brain looks totally differently. And how can we sort of take that lesson, which we all know to be true, and think about that when it comes to bodies. We need every single different kind of body because it gives us perspective. It gives us compassion. There are actual skills that come with bigger bodies that don't come with smaller bodies and vice versa. And there are strengths that are assigned to certain kinds of bodies and other kinds of bodies. And we need all of those bodies to create this beautiful, amazing world. That's beautiful. That is a wonderful way to try to explain it to kids. And and honestly, it's things that we need to hear as adults, too. You know, so much of this conversation we didn't get when we were younger, and now we're getting it today. And it's never too late, right? Like, these are the ways that changes are made. This is how we progress and grow and hopefully change the world for our kids as they're growing up into a space that is hopefully more accepting, more appreciative of the differences that are out there. So if people want to connect with you, I know you're very active on Instagram. You're Virgie Tovar on Instagram. And your new book, you can pre-order it right now, but it's going to be out on May 1st, Friday. You can get it at your local bookstore. I know lots of local bookstores right now are shipping. So if you can support your local indie bookstore, if it's not there, ask for it or wherever you get books online. It's called The Self-Love Revolution, Radical Body Positivity for Girls of Color. All right. Well, it is now time for Cool Picks of the Week. Cool Picks of the Week. And Virgie, you're our guest, so you get to go first. <laughs> yes. Um, so my cool pick of the week is lemon cake. Ooh. I just made some and that's it. Okay. So can we talk? Oh, so is it from scratch? Because I know a couple people have mentioned like William Sonoma has this like magical lemon cake mix that you can buy for those of us who are not uh, great bakers, but you made it from scratch. I made it from scratch. I mean, I hand beat it. Um, wow. It- <laughs> okay. <laughs> I hand cream 
in the butter. Like wow. So visceral and corporeal. Yeah. <laughs> okay. First of all, the two best words ever to describe a, a baking experience. So A plus for that. And and you know what's so interesting about being in quarantine? I feel like everyone around me is baking. Like, I don't know about you, but everyone's making bread in my feed. Oh, yes. <laughs> I've, been, I've been referring to it as like modern prairie homestead lifestyle. <laughs> yes. Um. Yes. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, we're going to put that up. Cool pick of the week. Lemon cake is awesome. And if you have a great recipe that you want to share with us, we can pop that up on our site or we can find one. We have actually have a food site called Cool Mom Eats. So maybe we can dig up a delicious lemon cake recipe for folks that we can share on our podcast page. And of course, all the links from our show, Virgie's book, the magical lemon cake of which she speaks will be found on our Cool Mom Picks <laughs> podcast page. So I have to say, this lemon cake would go fabulously with my cool pick of the week, which is the new Cards Against Humanity Family Edition. They actually just launched the public beta version of their game and it's free. So you can print it out. Just make sure you've got enough printer ink. Print it out. Make your kids cut out all the cards. It's a good homeschooling fine motor activity. And I have to say we played it a few days ago and my kids had a blast. And actually the adults did too. So there you go. A little, yes, yes, a little quarantine game fun with the Cards Against Humanity Family Edition. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Spawned. Huge thanks to our guest, Virgie Tovar, and our engineer, John Bowen. And thanks so much to Gbort1998, killer iTunes name. Thank you so much for your sweet review. You said, listening to these smart, fun, witty moms makes my daily eight-mile walks so much better. If that's not a quarantine (laughs) review, I don't know what is. Maybe you do eight-mile walks every day. If so, you're amazing. You are our hero. Holy cow. And if you've got a moment, you can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We would greatly appreciate that by doing so and subscribing and downloading our episodes. It actually helps other listeners like you find us. If you've got ideas for a future show or you just want to say hi, reach out on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're Cool Mom Picks and drop us an email, spawned at coolmompicks.com. If you haven't joined yet, we have a podcast community on Facebook. It's called, get ready, the Spawned Podcast Community. Surprise! I know we're really original. We chat about show topics and everything else you'd like to talk about. And you know, these days, there's lots to talk about. Thanks so much for listening to Spawn. This is Liz. Oh, this is not Liz. This is Kristen. Ha ha. <laughs> That's amazing. I don't know what I'm doing. Thanks so much for listening to Spawn. This is Kristen. Liz will be back next week. Have a great day. 